Hey guys, this is the C3 Church Malmo podcast. I am believing God will speak to you today and that a greater level of faith will be unlocked in your life. For more information about C3 Church, go to c3malmo.se. God bless. Actually, this will be the second time I preach this message because yesterday I got a knock on our door and it was the Jehovah Witnesses. And um, they said, are you interested in faith? I said, well, actually, I'm a Christian, and I preach. And they were like, oh, really? And then they had their pamphlet ready. And I said, yes, and actually, I'm preaching tomorrow. And they they asked me what I was going to preach about, so I gave them a pretty good rundown of today's message. And I felt like I got a good response. Um, I didn't do an altar call or anything like that, but I feel like some seeds are planted there. So it was really good just to test things out. Luckily, it was Easter, so we got a little bit more in common with the Jehovah Witnesses on Easter. If it was Christmas, that's a bit of a sticky topic. Uh, but um, it was good, good audience. Not every day you get a knock on the door and someone goes, tell me about your faith. Uh, so that, <laughs> people think it's a negative. I think it's a positive. <laughs> um, so that, that was good. Today, okay, I'm not going to let the buzzing ruin the show. Easter people series. In this series, we look at the Easter people of the Easter story. So I decided to go with a guy that was pretty big in the underground scene before going mainstream, but still, he never sold out. That's quite rare. His name, of course, is Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe you're familiar with him, yeah? So I'm going to be talking about Jesus of Nazareth, emphasis on Nazareth this morning, because I want to look at the the humanity of Jesus. You know that Jesus was a real guy. He was a person, actually walked on the earth. And I want to just hone in on that this morning. You know, Pope John Paul II said, we are Easter people and Alleluia is our song. He was paraphrasing from an Easter sermon by the Desert Father, Augustine. What he was saying is that our faith in Jesus Christ crucified and risen, must be lived by imitating him in daily life by the way we speak, think, and act. Anything else would be a betrayal of Jesus and our faith. So yes, this message this morning is going to be a challenge, but it's also, I believe, a priceless invitation for each and every one of us. It is when we embrace the life of Jesus that we can share in the hope that is Easter, That is the reason for our Alleluia song this Easter. Quite simply, the Easter story is an invitation to imitate Jesus' death so that we might participate in Jesus' life. The reason I want to speak about Jesus this morning is not simply because he is the hero of the story, uh, but I want to shine a light on that humanity of Jesus. Jesus is a man from Nazareth. You know, he, he is God, and that makes it difficult to, to appreciate that he was a real person. But it's one of the great mysteries of God that Jesus has two natures and one essence. He was both fully human and fully divine. It's hard for us to understand, just like the Trinity is pretty hard for us to get our head around, Right? You know, in history, people have, ident- have questioned the divinity of Jesus, particularly after Jesus had, had died and was resurrected. A lot of people questioned, oh, was he really God? You know, wasn't he just a man with a good teaching? 
And so there was, there was a heresy going around that Jesus was actually not God. And there, at the, around about the same time, there was another heresy, which I think is closer to maybe home for us. And that is the idea that Jesus wasn't really human, that he was just God. As his disciples, 2,000 years after Jesus walked on the earth, we perhaps can have a harder time with the latter, right? That it's hard to fathom the human nature of God rather than questioning his divine nature. That's kind of a given for many of us today, right? But Jesus was born, he was raised, and he lived as any other human during that time. That, that's, that's crazy to think about sometimes, isn't it? That he, you know, he also stubbed his toe and you know, went to the bathroom and did all the other things that humans do. But he's God. And through today's story, I hope we can get a greater understanding of his humanity because it's equally as important as his deity. I've got three reasons um, just to quickly summarize why Jesus' humanity is important. Firstly, he had to be born under the law to redeem us from our transgressions of that law. He had to come as a man. Secondly, he had to have his blood shed for the remission of our sins. Blood had to be shed. It couldn't be an animal. It couldn't be anything else. It had to be human blood to help rescue and save humankind. And thirdly, quite simply because he can now relate to us fully. He understands us because he has lived as a man. So Jesus coming in the flesh, it not only was necessary for our salvation, it also brought us closer to him. He understands us. Now, before we look at Jesus in the Easter story, I want us to look at the week that lies ahead of us now. Today is, anyone know what today is? Palm Sunday. Good Presbyterian influence there. <laughs> you don't remember, forget that stuff. <laughs> Palm Sunday. And traditions call this week the Holy Week or the Passion Week. It's the final week in Jesus' life, and as we will see today, it included great depths and great heights. He faced the dark night of the soul in Gethsemane, a torturous cross, and ultimately a glorious resurrection. Why is this important for us to revisit like we do every year in most traditions? Because identifying with Jesus in his journey keeps us focused and faithful in our journey. So starting off with today, Palm Sunday, I'll try to visualize it a little bit for you so you see where we are. Sunday, we can read in Matthew 21. I haven't got the scriptures today, but you can read, read through this this week, and I'm sure many of you are already planning to do that. Jesus arrives after his long journey from Galilee. He makes his entry into the city. He comes as a king, but he's not riding on a war horse. No, he's riding on a little donkey, making a triumphal yet humble entry. Each day, Jesus comes to the city, but in the evening, he returns to Bethany, which is a hilltop village on the Mount of Olives, just outside Jerusalem, about 30 minutes. Monday, Jesus visits the temple. He stages a prophetic protest, turning over tables and driving out all those who were buying and selling there. This all but seals his fate. People want this guy dead. He's upsetting the establishment. 
Tuesday, Jesus gets into a series of debates with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the elders, the whole lot. And on the way back to Bethany, he pauses on the Mount of Olives and he makes explicit predictions concerning the destruction of Jerusalem that would happen within a generation. That's Tuesday. We come to Wednesday. Wednesday, Jesus is anointed in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. Mary pours an alabaster box of pure nard worth a year's wages upon him as perfume. And people begin to criticize her. But Jesus says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing for me. Mary recognized that this is the king, and it's time to anoint him and begin to treat him like a king. It's startling to see through all these stories how Jesus is always hinting to his followers about what is about to come, and yet no one seems to realize what is coming. <laughs> it's like an all-too-familiar communication breakdown that some of you might be familiar with, uh, perhaps where the wife is telling her husband important things about the week ahead, and then that husband is shocked as the week unfolds and realizes, didn't someone say something about, there was something I was supposed to remember. Yeah, I had one of those moments this week. <laughs> yeah, you know. You know, Lynn says, Lynn only has really two faults with me. One is that I don't listen, and the second thing is, I forgot what that was, but anyway. <laughs> okay, that brings us to Thursday. Holy Thursday. This is the focus of our story today. What happened that day? Quite a lot happened. And that is where we will focus this morning. So I hope you're listening this morning. It was the beginning of Passover that evening. And so Jesus sent his two disciples into the city to make preparations. Now, when evening comes, Jesus and his 12 disciples go from Bethany into the upper part of the city of Jerusalem, into an upper room where they celebrate the feast of Passover together. Now, the Passover feast, what is that? Well, it celebrates the liberation of the Israelite people from slavery in Egypt. Now, during the Last Supper, as we now call it, Jesus institutes the sacrament of communion that we're going to be taking today, the Eucharist, as some call it. He takes the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. He takes the cup and says, this is my blood shed for you. During this time in the upper room, Judas abruptly leaves, but is not treated as suspicious by anyone because he's the treasurer. He often has, you know, matters to deal with, you know, important money stuff. Jesus and the remaining 11 disciples, they sing a hymn together, it says in Scripture. Now, while it doesn't explicitly say which hymn was sung, Jewish tradition reveals that the Passover meal was concluded by singing the last portion of the Hallel. Now, the Hallel is composed of Psalms 113 through to 118. It is a joyous celebration of praise and thanksgiving giving to God. Now, after singing this hymn together, they left the upper room and they went to a place called Gethsemane. It's situated on the Mount of Olives. It was a favorite place of Jesus where he liked to pray, uh, and his disciples knew this. Judas definitely knew this. 
they like to pray in this particular olive grove, a garden of olive trees, which you can visit to this day. I've been there my, myself, uh, and there's trees there that are over a thousand years old. They don't know how old some of them are. It was one of my favorite places that I visited in Israel, and I can understand why Jesus really liked it. It's a peaceful place. It's outside the hustle and bustle of the city, and I can just imagine having nice, quiet prayer times there, maybe without all the tourists that are there today, but still, you can get the vibe there. Gethsemane means oil press. It was where oil was pressed during the harvest. The olives were pressed to extract the precious oil, the olive oil. Jesus, as Peter professed, was the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one. Jewish kings were traditionally anointed with oil. And as we will see, you could say it was here at the olive press that Jesus was under pressure to prepare him for an inauguration of oil. Jesus and his 11 disciples, they had left the upper room near midnight, walked that 30 minutes to Bethany under a full moon and stopped in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Jesus' demeanor, it seemed to change at this point. Something happened, the disciples noticed. He was clearly distressed. He's upset. He enters the garden with 11 disciples. He tells eight to stay at the gate, but then moves deeper into the garden where he asks Peter, James, and John to stop there and pray for him. Jesus then moves even deeper into the garden, and now he's alone where he reaches the very heart of Gethsemane, where we are told that Jesus falls to the ground. He doesn't kneel down delicately, not adopting some pious posture of prayer. He falls to the ground, Scripture says. Now, let me circle back to that hymn that I mentioned that they sung at Passover meal. Why is this significant to the events of the Holy Week? Well, by looking at Psalm 118, which is the part that they would have prayed or sung, we can see today that there are many references to the eventual salvation of the Lord's people, made possible by the death and resurrection of Christ. This is especially true of this Psalm 118, which served as the conclusion of the Passover meal. It contains the line, I was pushed so hard. I think we've got the scripture there. It says, I was pushed so hard that I was falling. Now, Jesus finds himself at his own place of pressure, and he falls to the ground just as he'd been singing. In Gethsemane, we are told that Jesus was distressed, and he was troubled, and he was overwhelmed with sorrow. And he felt like he was going to die. And I'm not talking about him anticipating the cross. I'm talking about right there and then. Have you ever been under so much pressure that you think that this moment is going to kill me? Here's where I think we can underappreciate the humanity of Jesus. Jesus is not an actor going through the motions where he is reading a script. Maybe we've been kind of uh, misled by watching so many plays where we see like somebody coming out uh, with their shirt off and, 
and playing Jesus, and it's all clean, and it's a, you know what's going to happen. So it's a, it's a positive, happy ending, right? Jesus is living this in real time. He's not following a script. He's not going through the motions here. He doesn't know the outcome. He believes, but he's not working from memory. He's not done this before. Jesus was not joyfully going to the cross. He was human. He didn't want to suffer. He didn't want to die. He was a young man. Jesus would have known full well the horror and the humiliation of the cross. Consider that he was likely a young boy when 2,000 Galilean revolutionaries were crucified for insurrection in Jerusalem. Crucifixion was designed to not only kill, but to strip a person of their dignity in the most miserable of deaths. And Jesus naturally recoiled from that in Gethsemane. Jesus is facing the full dread of death on our behalf as Emmanuel, God with us on the doorstep of death. And so Jesus prays in Mark 14, 36. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. This was not a serene prayer as some art depicts. This was a distressed, emotional prayer. This is perhaps one of the starkest illustrations of Jesus' humanity, as we aren't used to seeing Jesus not in control. He's the guy that calmed the storms, right? He, he casts out the demons. He, he heals the sick. But in Gethsemane, we meet Jesus of Nazareth under severe pressure. Now, there is a side of Jesus that wants to follow the will of the Father, to live that life that he preached on the, the, Mount, uh, the Sermon on the Mount all the way to the cross. But there is another side that wants to flee from it. But ultimately, we know that Jesus chooses to say, yet not what I will, but what you will. The death that we are called to imitate is the death of the will. What that looks like and what that leads through can be very different for each and every one of us, but it's always painful. It's always distressing. It was the cup of suffering that Jesus told the brothers James and John about whilst they were arguing on their way to Jericho, debating who would be at each side of him as he enters into glory. He warned them, you do not know what you are asking for. You aren't able to drink from this cup of suffering. They probably didn't understand him. But as we will learn about next week, the honor that, was, that honor of being by his side as he entered into the kingdom was actually bestowed upon a thief hung beside him at Golgotha. Jesus is praying alone and his disciples have fallen asleep. Even his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, have come to the end of their capabilities to help Jesus. But Judas, he was wide awake. He was helping the elders, the scribes, and the chief priests to do something they didn't dare do in public space. They'd been scheming, and they'd been wanting to kill this guy for a long time, but they knew we can't do this in the public, where he's a popular guy. If we try to take him in, in the, amongst the crowds, they're going to lynch us. 
We have to know where he is in the quiet place. We have to be able to take him without anyone noticing. But we, ne- we need someone. We need, an, we need an insider that knows his whereabouts because Jesus was very careful about his steps. and Nobody could trace him. They wanted to address him in private to avoid that uproar. Now, the previous day, Judas had gone to the priests and he'd offered his services for the cost of 30 pieces of silver. I thought that was quite interesting. I was like, is that a lot of money? Is that a lot of money? Anyone know? (laughs) I looked it up. Well, um, this was actually a fulfillment of prophecy, as is pretty much everything in this story. Um, It was a fulfillment of a prophecy from Zechariah. That it, that, that it would happen for 30 uh, pieces of silver. Now, if you've wondered, it was not a fortune. It was the same sum that was paid as compensation for the accidental death of a slave. And as you know, slaves weren't highly valued at that time. And at best, it was only a third of what Mary's perfume cost. Interesting. So it wasn't an offer that Judas couldn't refuse. It wasn't like, oh, you know what? I love this guy, but that's a lot of money. That's life-changing. It wasn't life-changing money. So why did Judas betray Jesus? Well, there's a lot of theories, of course. You know, we can speculate about his motivations, and it is just speculation with the little information that we know. But one theory is that he was disappointed in Jesus. A lot of people were disappointed in Jesus. Some believe that Iscariot was actually a corruption of the Latin word Sicarius, suggesting he was a member of the Sicarii, a group of Jewish terrorists. It was because they had these long daggers that used to have in cloaks. Apparently, used to go around and just killing, offing people that they didn't like. So these guys had a, a, a goal of overthrowing the Roman rule and basically installing Jewish um, independence. So it was like a terrorist group. So some people believe that, that, that Judas could have actually been a part of this group. Now, this is obviously debatable, but we can see in the Gospels that Judas was disappointed in how Jesus operated. Perhaps he thought, if I can just get Jesus backed up into a corner, He'll come out fighting, and he'll be the kind of king that I actually want, one that's going to overthrow these Romans. It's going to use his power to establish what I've always wanted, which is a free and independent Jewish state. Perhaps he thought, if I could just create a scenario, I could get him to step up and finally be the Messiah that I had dreamed of. Maybe that was his motivation. Maybe he thought that I could start a revolution and Jesus won't suspect the thing. He won't know that it was ultimately me that set this whole thing up. Now, this kind of political maneuvering, it wouldn't be out of place on a backbench of parliament. We, we know that this stuff does happen, that people go and you know, work with other parties in order to get their leader to make a decision that they want that's on their agenda, right? So it's, it's not completely beyond plausibility that this was what he was thinking. He probably thought, you know, he never entertained the idea that Jesus would actually be killed, that he would be crucified. I mean, Jesus, he can just call down the angels at any point, right? No one can bring any harm on the, on the king. He's God, right? 
Jesus was betrayed by Judas with a kiss, which is interesting. He could have just pointed at Jesus. He didn't need to go and kiss him on the cheek. But maybe he thought Jesus wouldn't know that he was in on it. Maybe he would thought that Jesus wouldn't know that he was an accomplice. Maybe he thought that Jesus was now going to show this lot, finally, who is boss in this region. But Matthew tells us that when he realized that his schemes had gone terribly wrong, the worst that could have happened, he was filled with remorse. He had sinned against innocent blood, as Scripture says. He was foolish. He was deceived. He was blinded by project self. But Jesus was his friend. The pain of knowing he was responsible was such that he threw away the money and he took his own life. The police seized Jesus. Violence broke out, and Jesus had made sure that his disciples had swords in hand so that he was numbered amongst transgressors transgressors, and would disarm them. It was a set-up lesson. Peter, like a child, he shouts, Jesus, shall we strike? And like so often my sons do, they don't wait for the answer. They just do it, and then you're like, oh, it's one of those typical, oh, no, oh, never mind moments. Too late. And Peter strikes the, the, uh, the officer, Malchus, the guard, and, and severs his ear. He then heals Malchus and is taken away without protest. But not before he says, put away your swords. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. Again, teaching something about the way his kingdom operates. Now, I like to think that we know the, the name of this God uh, because he later becomes a follower of Jesus and he's part of the early church. Like, it's just interesting when the Bible chooses to name people. It's just a random God. Like, how do we know this guy's name? I think maybe Malchus joined the welcome team after, right? He, uh, oh, Malchus, the guy with the big smile. Oh, yeah. Really? Was he? He was the guy who had his ear cut off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how could he not be a Christian after that, right? How could he not be a follower of Christ? I mean, he had his ear healed right in, in, in front of him. I mean, uh, so it's, it's really interesting to think that all these names that get mentioned, they're probably people that became part of that early church. Just speculation, but I like to think that that's true. <laughs> so where was I? Yeah, the drama of Gethsemane ends with these words. They all left him and fled. Would they have stayed and fought if, they, if Jesus had allowed them to fight with those arms? That's an interesting question. Maybe. Peter even said that he was willing to die for Jesus. Ah, I'll die for you. But he wasn't willing to die as Jesus was going to die, as a lamb led to slaughter, at least, not yet. Jesus' disciples would have stayed with him and fought with him and even died with him if necessary. They were willing to do this, This felt natural to them, to fight. What they were unwilling to do was to surrender. And so they all fled, and Jesus was left all alone. Jesus invites all of us into the new world he has inaugurated. It ties in so much to that picture that Matthew shared. It's that world of victory by surrender. We are Easter people, because we are being invited to turn our back on violence in defense of Project Self, of my agenda, 
and instead take up the cross as our Lord Jesus did, to embrace self-denial, to not run from suffering or pain, but instead see it as a gift to imitate our Lord in the knowledge that it, in, it, that in its time, of, in, in our time of pressing, our Gethsemane moments that God refines us for his glory. This is our discipleship. Pastor Phil Pringle recently reminded us of, of, of that in a conference. He said that we meet Jesus at the cross, but at some point, we need to take up that cross. That means not just accepting God's forgiveness, blessings, and provision for your freedom, but actually leaving behind the past, surrendering, and serving. It's for the sake of others, and it does cost something. It might be painful. There might be times where you're just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You don't know if this moment is going to kill you. But we have to come to that place where we say, not my will, but yours be done. Scottish evangelist Oswald Chambers once wrote this. He said, our Lord is trying to introduce us to identification with himself through a particular Gethsemane experience of our own. Maybe you're in, or you have been in, a Gethsemane moment, a place of severe anxiousness, stress, or struggle. Remember that you serve a high priest who is able to empathize with your weaknesses, having himself been tempted in every way. The Apostle Paul understands the comfort in Jesus' story. It's why he often retraced the Easter timeline in his letters. He found strength and power to persevere by identifying consistently with Jesus and the events in his life. Paul tracked the events of his life and the life of the believer in light of the pivotal events of Easter. Just listen to what he said and ask yourself if it sounds familiar. I picked 2 Corinthians 4, 7 for this one. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. I know some of you want to continue singing the song, but this is the scripture. <laughs> we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. See what Paul is doing there? He's retracing that Easter story. That is our story. That is our journey as well. I want to invite the band up as I come in for a close now. This past Tuesday night, we had C-Free uh, Global Prayer. It was, it was like 500-something churches all joining in on a Wednesday night and, and Thursday morning. And it's just a, so beautiful just to see people praying from all the continents, different languages. And uh, one thing that really struck me was just hearing in the prayers of our brothers and sisters. Oh, get emotional. <laughs> Of, uh, from the Middle East, uh, from Syria, and you, you're just talking about situation, people that are homeless right now, people that are suffering great persecution, and we're just standing with them and praying 
for their church and how, how, how much they suffer greatly for the cause of the gospel. Such a good reminder for us living in the relative comfort and freedoms of the West that it, it was just a reminder to me that there is a cost of being a disciple and it looks different for each and every one of us. But ultimately it comes down to our will. That is what needs to be put to death as a disciple of Jesus. We need to be able to deny ourselves. We need to be able to bring everything to God and surrender it to him. We, not may, we may not suffer persecution on that level, thank God, but perhaps you're in a season of being hard-pressed on every side, persecuted, struck down even. And as tough as that can be, I want you to be encouraged this Easter, that it's not a sign that you are failing, not at all. Remember that this, Paul calls us fragile jars of clay, but we're carrying a great treasure. Sometimes we have cracks in us. Sometimes we've been through hardship. We, we've, we've got sores. We've got scars. But those cracks, they reveal his glory. And in the life in life, at times, we, we will have to suffer with Christ so that he might be revealed in us. You know, my mom always talks to the, the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. It says, um, we can either get better or we can get bitter. And she's dealing with people that have been through some things in life that is not of their own cause, that they don't deserve things that have been done to them. And it's what we do with that. And so if that is you, maybe you've had stuff happen to you and, you know, the temptation would have been for your prayer to be like, God, just do something about this, people. Just do something about this situation. But as Jesus, he just poured out his emotion. He just let Jesus know. He just let the Father know, hey, I don't want to die. I'm afraid, Father. But ultimately, he just surrendered it over to him and he allowed God to do his work in him. And maybe that will look like turning the other cheek. Maybe that will look like forgiving someone who maybe you feel like at times in the past doesn't deserve your forgiveness. And it's only through the grace of God that you can take those steps. Something happened in Jesus' soul at Gethsemane. Something he wants us to experience as his followers. At Gethsemane, he modeled for us what he wants us to learn to do and do regularly. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He knows. He's been through it. The point of the writers of the Gethsemane story is clear. If Jesus can bring his anguish, his stress, and his questions to the Father, then you can do the same. If following God's will involves struggle for Jesus, then you will struggle also at times. But you must remember to struggle towards God and not away from him. If you're in a personal Gethsemane this morning, be encouraged. Just as it had a beginning, it too will have an end. But the timetable, so often it can depend upon us. It can depend upon our acceptance of God's will. Remember, every Gethsemane leads to a resurrection, but not before it leads to a cross. 
When you find your identity as a disciple, you will know that in your struggle, you're never actually alone. Never. You'll see your life in the bright lights of Christ's. For your Savior, Jesus, not only knows how to struggle for you, but he also struggles with you. The same Jesus who reigns, heals, and saves, he also wept. Take comfort this morning, church. He is right by your side in each of life's struggles, pointing toward a coming resurrection. I want you to just stand now because we're shortly going to be taking communion. And now, of course, communion is for us that are baptized in the faith. It's a way for us to draw close to our Savior. It's about identifying with him in his death and his life as we take this bread that is his body broken for us. And as we take this juice that is his blood shed for us. We are actually united with him. Isn't that incredible? We are united with him. So I want to invite you to come forward as we go into worship now, to come forward and to receive the communion here. And as you take the elements and with you back to your seat, just in prayerful reflection this morning, bring your everything before God, just as Jesus did, falling to his knees. Bring it before him. Your raw emotions. Jesus meets you in your reality. He doesn't meet you in your piousness or your, your proper and, and respectful ways. He meets you in your raw emotion. So just let God know how you're feeling this morning. He's not afraid of it. He wasn't afraid. He didn't tell Jesus off when he, t- he told him how he was feeling. He listened. He embraced him. So in prayer for reflection, bring everything before him and surrender it to the Father just as your Savior Jesus did. Before we do that, I just want to finish reading that passage from 2 Corinthians 4 and let it encourage us this morning. It says this, For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe before, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe, therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen.